0: Old Books of Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, delighted today to be talking to a fellow medievalist, Dr. Eleanor Parker. I also want to apologize in advance because during this interview there were some technical difficulties, so it may sound a little different than usual. Luckily, Dr. Parker was game to keep chatting the beauties and joys of Old English with me. Eleanor Parker is lecturer in medieval English literature at Brasenose College, Oxford. She's the author of Dragon Lords. The History and Legends of Viking England in 2018, Conquered, The Last Children of Anglo-Saxon England, 2022, and Winters in the World, A Journey Through the Anglo-Saxon Year. She's also written for History Today and is the creator of the Clerk of Oxford blog.
1: Welcome, Dr. Parker. I'm so glad you're here today.
2: Thank you. It's great to be
1: here. Yeah. So I ask everybody who comes on Old Books with Grace two questions, just as get to know you questions. And um, the first will likely be uh, difficult for you, which is what is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago?
0: Oh, well, that is a difficult question.
1: <laughs> and you can uh, okay. several. I will not uh confine you to one. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um well I feel like as a medievalist, I kind of feel like I, I have I should pick a medieval author. Um and I guess I could Oh you don't have to, you many, can pick whatever you like. <laughs> <laughs> I think to to be honest, the the first person who springs to mind when whenever people ask me that question. Um maybe it's something a lot of people pick on it feels really obvious um it's Jane Austen um she's just you know someone I come back to again and again and just absolutely very very close to my heart
1: oh she is my favorite too I must admit (laughs) um which of her books do you find yourself returning to the most
2: I, all of them, really. I just whatever different mood I'm in, well, whatever book I'm reading at the, that particular time seems to be the one that is my favorite and that i I kind of need or want the most. So I couldn't even pick which which one is my favorite.
1: I um I reread Pride and Prejudice every year at Christmas. Um, it's yeah. not my favorite. I think persuasion's probably my favorite, but um, I totally agree with that. There are certain uh, times of year or certain moods where you just return to it. Um, and I, she's so incredible. She's so amazing. So kindred spirits with the Jane Austen love. That's good to know. Yes. So then my second question for you, which literary character do you most identify with and why?
2: Okay. Uh, <laughs> I won't give a Jane Austen answer this time I mean to be honest it probably. <laughs> no I won't say that. Um I actually I will give a medieval answer. Um so many years ago when I started my blog I called it A Clock of Oxford. Um yeah. And that's named after a character in the Canterbury Tales, so one of the Canterbury Pilgrims, um, and he is—he's a clerk in the sense that he's a you know a scholar, isn't he? He's like he's a cleric, and he's like a, it's a very idealized picture <laughs> of a scholar. Um, so I'm not saying I identify within the sense that I am the ideal scholar and anything. but there is this line that I always remember from that um, from Chaucer's description of him, where he talks about how the clock gladly would he learn and gladly teach, and I just really like the application of that word gladly to scholarly work into teaching I sort of that's that's a goal that I would like to aspire to to do it gladly so yeah that,
1: that's uh, that's oh, I love that that's amazing and yes that's a wonderful line from Chaucer and also I do feel like you have um given uh, teaching gladly in that in that blog particularly um in your clerk of Oxford blog um there's a lot of glad teaching there so that's a lovely comparison. Um, <laughs> Although, uh, do you, do you like his tale? No. (laughs) No, Just (laughs) wondering how you felt about Griselda. No, No, he tells an awful tale. It is. is. Um, yeah, (laughs) I agree. Uh, one of my least favorite tales of Chaucer, I'd have to say, of the Canterbury.
2: Had a better one, to be honest. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it is a fun character. Um, well, I'm always thrilled to have another medievalist come on the podcast and your blog, Clerk of Oxford, has been a really great resource for me, for a lot of other people I know. Um, but you focus on uh, mostly, you you kind of do all kinds of things, but um, your recent publications have been on earlier medieval things than I work on. So for curious listeners, um, would you mind describing Old English, the period you work on, Anglo-Saxon culture, what does that entail?
2: Yeah, so I, as you say, I'm, I'm kind of interested in all kinds of medieval things, as, as maybe you are as well. And um, so uh, for my teaching and for some of my research, I do kind of stretch across the medieval period, like right from the Anglo-Saxon period, uh, in English rather, um, right up to the, the kind of um, the Reformation. But what I've been thinking about most recently is, so the early medieval period, Anglo-Saxon period is kind of between about the sort of 5th, 6th century um, into about 1100. Um and there's this kind of, mo- the one thing people know about Anglo-Saxon literature is usually Beowulf, um, but there is a lot more to Anglo-Saxon uh, literature than Beowulf. There is actually a really interesting, very rich vernacular corpus of all kinds of different texts. Um, and it's a, um, a quite, a, I, I mean, it's, it's a kind of a literature that... Mm, doesn't have much maybe presence in the in our <laughs> kind of cultural world more generally I guess beyond Beowulf um it's not something people find easy to access because the language although it is English is a very old form of English so it's it's almost like a foreign language to most people reading it um, so it can seem quite inaccessible but um I'm absolutely fascinated by it and I think there's a lot of richness in there that's worth kind of bringing to a wider audience.
1: So I just finished your um, really delightful, evocative book, Winters in the World, which is on the Anglo-Saxon calendar year and old English poetry. And um, by the way, for American listeners, this book doesn't release for us until December, but it's available for pre-order. Could you tell us a little bit more about Winters in the World?
2: Yeah, so the idea of the book was really to kind of track The cycle of the year as it's kind of experienced or talked about or reflected on or whatever in Old English um, literature, especially Old English poetry. There's quite a lot of poetry in the book. Um, So it's partly a history of. Um, this period in which the calendar in England actually changed really substantially because this is the period in which England first converted to Christianity. So you've got the change from a pagan calendar to a new Christian calendar of festivals and saints days and holidays and so on. So there's a really profound cultural shift that takes place in this period in English history. So it's partly a history of that and an exploration of how that kind of developed over the course of the next few centuries after the conversion. And also, as I say, partly um, a kind of appreciation or a a study of how um, the seasons were experienced in Anglo-Saxon England and how they were thought about and talked about and the kind of language that was used for them Um, and I tried to sort of spread the net quite broadly in terms of the sources that I talk about so there's a lot of poetry but there's also kind of sermons and histories and medical texts and charms and and all kinds of different things everything I could find really.
1: Something that I was struck by as you are working through all those different um, varieties of sources and um, thinking through these different, uh, la- the, all this language around the seasons was um, the deep conviction in the Anglo Saxon church that, um, as you describe it at one point, the created world must reveal truths about God's purpose. And so, for instance, you begin the book with this dynamic exploration of winter and Advent. The traditional beginning of the liturgical year and describe how these ancient wintry apocalyptic themes in, in poetry in particular are tie into or are mirrored in um, the traditional apocalyptic themes that we see in Advent scriptural readings still to this day. Um, so how do you think that their perspective of the created world differs from ours today? Well, I think that's a that's a big question. A very interesting a big, question. And you can yeah, you answer yeah. as you see fit, uh pick out small things or large things yeah. for that matter. Yeah. But
2: um I think the the kind of most important thing I suppose is that you know when we talk about this is a, a kind of useful distinction maybe to make that when we talk about nature or the natural world or something, we're often taking a kind of either a you know, a scientific approach, we're thinking about kind of, you know, the the biology of it or whatever. Um or we're we're kind of appreciating it as maybe modern poets do, we take an interest in um, nature as a reflection of human experience, but sort of fundamentally something quite separate from us nonetheless. Whereas for medieval poets thinkers whatever nature was was part of creation it was god's creation and so are human beings and every aspect of nature so from the smallest plant to you know the sun and the moon and the solar cycles and of course the cycle of the seasons that's all part of god's of of a created world that was planned with purpose and design and intention Um, and human beings are, are kind of fully integrated into that unity. Um, So there are all kinds of ways in which at every moment in the year or in any kind of interaction between humanity and the natural world, there's always sort of something deeper to it, or at least the potential of some kind of deeper meaning that reflects a a truth about God, about his purpose for humanity, about what he was sort of doing in creating the world, I suppose. There's this sense of kind of intention and and purpose and something to be read in nature if you approach it with with the proper eyes.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And so they, they, um, today it feels like when we talk about, and not always, but, but for a lot of folks, when we talk about nature or, um, uh, the natural world, we sort of incorporate uh, a feeling of randomness into it, um, where either through, um, uh, We just don't have a strong sense of causality necessarily behind small details, right? Would you say that um, that's a pretty key difference in in how Anglo-Saxon folks thought about uh, looking at the world around them compared to how we think about the world around us often?
2: Yeah, I think they just are kind of constantly coming back to the idea that God is the cause of nature and of everything in nature. So you can't talk about, say, the harvest, for instance. They don't talk about harvest without thinking about where harvest came from. And ultimately, okay, harvest came from, you know, the farmers grew the crops, but God is the ultimate source of the power that makes things grow. So that's how they tend to think about it. They always sort of look one step behind the natural cause or the the sort of apparent cause to who was the the first cause where did this power come from where does the sort of life force come from um that drives the cycle of the seasons or drives growth in nature and in human beings and that's always got so there's always kind of something beyond, behind that they're aware of and attentive to
1: um at the end of the book you make a really interesting suggestion that thinking alongside some of these traditions might inspire us in the midst of of our own ongoing ecological crisis. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little more. I'd love to explore that idea further. I, I think that could be really fruitful.
2: Hmm. Yeah, so I think one of the things that I've become really interested in, as I've been sort of studying the development of these kinds of festivals and, and seasonal um, moments or observations or whatever, is that, of course, in lots of ways, we in the modern world have moved very far away from the kind of society in which these festivals were important or this way of seeing nature was important i mean in lots of ways we live at least in the uk in a kind of post-christian society people yes. don't see the world through the same kind of christian lens that the, the anglo-saxons or medieval um christians did um
1: right. well, and of or um, you have a christian lens of like a fallen world where it's not that god's uh moving through um creation really clearly it's that uh, in, in like a lot of uh, reformed or Calvinist traditions you just have sort of this gross fallen world that lacks mm-hmm. a, a clarity of God's purpose in it um yeah. where sin has so destroyed the image or whatever um and so th- that's also a uh, post-Christian and that other a, a different kind of Christian vision that yeah. really doesn't yeah. seem to match a, an Anglo-Saxon vision yeah
2: yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there are there are definitely tr- traditions within Christianity in which being too closely attuned to nature or to natural cycles or whatever is, is kind of too earthly, or it's as if it's your sort of you're forgetting the spiritual in the material. Um and a lot of the kinds of traditions that go along with, say, Saints' Days or um or seasonal festivals, obviously they're, you know, in this medieval context, they're Catholic traditions. And so you know, Protestant (laughs) strands of Christianity have often pushed back against those very strongly and and seen this as basically superstition. You know, why are you celebrating harvest festivals? That's just superstitious. But, you know, I mean, that's not necessarily uh, um, how we would see it. So, um, yeah, I mean, you were asking about kind of what it offers to a a, a world in ecological crisis. And I I guess it is that sense of of how do we relate to, to nature? How do we see ourselves in relation to nature? Because, it's so much the case. I mean, we, you know, as I was saying, we kind of we live in a post-Christian society, also a, a, not an agricultural society in the way that, you know, medieval Christians did. We're not attuned to these kinds of natural cycles in, as kind of fundamentally as they were. And we're often really insulated from things like, I mean, you know, we experience winter, but not like the medieval
0: medieval oh, no. at all.
2: Um, so we feel like we've kind of maybe controlled or tamed those aspects of nature, like well, we have electric lighting, so we don't have to worry about when the shortest day is and how dark it's going to be. Um, But I, I think in some ways, an, a sense of living through a time of, of ecological crisis kind of makes us more vulnerable to nature, actually. I mean, to mm-hmm. extremes of temperature or whatever, we, we aren't as protected from all of those things as we like to think we are. Maybe we can't control those things with technology um as much as... Maybe a few decades ago, people thought we'd kind of got it all sorted, and that we never had to worry about this stuff again. And that's not yes. the case. Um,
1: that we have this sort of false sense of mastery. Yeah. That is really the the fragility and kind of stupidity of that that sense of mastery is really coming home to roost right now.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so that sense of how dependent we actually are on. a a healthy and productive natural environment you know we're not really in control of it or we shouldn't try and control every aspect of it but maybe adopt something more like this medieval attitude of you know gratitude and and recognition of our connection
1: to the natural world and
2: you know not this sense that we are sort of absolutely just the the masters of creation I guess
1: yes yeah I I as I was reading um A place that I really thought of that um, in relation with was when you're talking about the tradition of, say, um, of uh, rogation days where there's a penitential element to it. it, so rogation days were uh, days where um, people uh, processed around where they lived. In in the later years of this, it became around your parish, um, and and as you write in your book, they also sought to consecrate and hallow um, the physical spaces in which they lived. And it it occurred to me that maybe that's a really interesting place for um, Christians today to think about their relation to, uh, the environment and to ongoing ecological struggles is approaching in a penitential spirit and in a consecrating and hallowing spirit. Um, yeah, I was struck by that.
2: Yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting. The sense that you have, I mean, at at different periods of the year and in also different kinds of practices, I guess, I mean, um, a sense that you, you, that these, um, they seek to to sort of make space sacred. So the church obviously is a sacred space, but there are lots of other places that could be sacred. And so, I mean, another parallel, I mean, you're absolutely right about Rogation time, this idea of taking processions out into the countryside. And then you also get things like blessings for a barn at harvest where you've got the harvested crops and there's a a blessing that's done with the bread of Lammas, the harvest festival, to kind of protect the crops and to say, this is our food and we really need it. And we want to to make this barn a sacred place where it's safe and protected. Um, So I think that sense of of kind of being able to to kind of spread a sense of sacredness or of, of a kind of hallowed space outside of the obvious places like churches and shrines is something that's really powerful about these you know they bless fields they bless woods they bless orchards because they want these places to flourish and grow and be prosperous because if they do then the human communities who depend on them will also flourish and grow so that's that sense of dependence is is very much kind of nurtured um for, in a spiritual sense you know they, they try and invoke a blessing on these places and the things that grow from them
1: yeah I, I think what I'm struck by again, and in this book and in listening to you um talk on that, is that they just were convinced that um the spiritual and the physical, the ghostly and the bodily were were fairly inseparable, really, that um our our dependence was uh, upon um nature upon God's provision through nature was so material and spiritual that there there is just an artificial separation. Uh, between the two if you if you push that too far right mm-hmm. so i i i really enjoyed your description of um of some of their poetry around pentecost um and the gifts of the holy spirit aren't just gifts of uh, that way you would think of, of you know traditional gifts of the holy spirit like um leading or praise or speaking in tongues or or whatever but that they include in their list um crafts uh, craft skills. And um, so, so you describe uh, that there's, um I have the quote written down somewhere, but there's an awareness that what is happening in, in a forge is just as much yeah. of a gift of the spirit or what's happening in the harvest field is yeah. just as much a gift of the spirit as what's happening in the preaching of the gospel.
2: Yeah, absolutely. All kinds of human skill are manifestations of that kind of spirit is the way they see it and yeah, I
1: think that's really lovely.
0: Climbing, so I wonder trees. if that
1: too is another interesting place where uh, where the this Anglo-Saxon attitude um, towards nature and the changing of the seasons can help us begin to think more creatively about how to approach ecological crisis, where we stop trying to um, emphasize or deemphasize certain gifts at the expense of other things that are also gifts. Um, but that's me um, spitballing, and i thinking out loud. Mm-hmm. But I appreciated that from them. I was I was really impressed by their practicality. Honestly,
2: yeah, that's that's what I really like about it. It's very much a practical, very kind of grounded approach to it.
1: <laughs> <Yes>. Quite literally <laughs> grounded. <laughs> yes. Um, so. Um, something I also appreciated is how much you resist false distinctions or overconfident narratives in thinking about the past. So for instance, uh, dualistic perspectives between like pagan remnants of a practice and the Anglo-Saxon world. So like the charms that you brought up, the very bodily charms that are also prayers. Um, And there's, It's hard to kind of distinguish between those categories or the strong appreciation for nature and harvest and the gifts of God alongside and almost inextricable from celebrations of saints Mm -hmm. Um, or even just dualism in the darkness of winter versus brightness of summer. But in your book, you draw upon how both can become either seasons of lament or seasons of hidden surprising growth. Um, I think there's a lot of wisdom for us because I I feel like I don't know how it is um, where you are in England, but I feel like we're in America. I'm living in a really sort of super dualist culture right now. Um, Does it feel that way there?
2: In a very kind of divided society, do you mean?
1: Yes. In a, in a world where um, there's uh, not much room for um, the inseparability and the complexity of, of, uh, uh, practices where you're like, that's bad, that's good. Um, or this is, uh, death and this is life. Um, and something that I think really comes out in old English poetry is that they, uh, the writers of these poems are always holding together like their lament with beautiful language or, Mm -hmm. um, you, uh, write about, um, I'm forgetting the name right now of the of the poem of the that ha- that takes place in summer but is a lament by the yeah, wife. The wife's um, lament. Yeah. Yes, the wife's lament. Um and I'm struck by how how brilliantly they hold that together and how even it's a part of their practicality.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's really nice how they kind of recognize I mean one of the things that I really like about these poems is they recognize it sounds really obvious maybe there are seasons in human life yes. and that it's not kind of one thing or the other, and that they're always talking about the idea of transience. I mean, medieval yeah. poets generally, and Anglo-Saxon poets obsessed with the idea of transience, the idea that life on earth is just lent to us. That's the word they always use, Lena. It's really, it's lent, it's from God, obviously. So mm. um, Whatever we have on earth is not really ours to hold on to. And so no state of happiness is going on earth is going to be permanent, but also no state of sorrow is going to be permanent either. There's always this sense of things are going to change you know, the seasons are going to turn, there's going to be this kind of um, either seasons of growth or seasons of decay, seasons of gain, seasons of loss, and um, there's there's really a poetry of, of kind of patience and endurance, mm-hmm. I think. I like that, yes. I you know, something you just, you kind of wait for things to change, <laughs> and that <laughs> often lies in these laments.
1: Yes, I think that's a great way of stating that, um, and a poetry of waiting is such an interesting concept because I do feel like in, in post-modernity, uh, at least I am really bad at waiting and we're kind of taught to resist waiting at all costs. Like everything must be immediate. Yeah. And so the appreciation of the slow change that you see um, as you're paying attention to the seasonal poetry as well is pretty incredible. Um, you mention the lovely Eng- old English word to lend and um but I I would be curious to know what's your favorite old English word and why or one of because there are so many I think what comes out in the book is that there are so many wonderfully evocative uh, old English terms yeah. um so I was curious what you're particularly drawn to I oh
2: my goodness so that's kind of I think if you asked me at different times, I would give different answers. To that answer. Fair enough. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> it's really a word that you really love. Um, one word I really like. I talk a bit about in the harvest section is a word "ad" um, e a d i g, which means blessed or happy. And I really, I just like the sound of it. "Ad," I just think it's really nice. Um, that's one of my favourites, and that that comes up in quite a lot of aid comes up in Anglo-Saxon names like Edward and Edith and so on. There, they've got aid in them, so that sense of a kind of people who are blessed and happy. It's just a really nice
1: nice (laughs) that is a lovely word and speaking of really interesting words bless itself has a fascinating Mm -hmm. history could you tell us more about that because that's one that really stands out to me
2: yeah so that's really interesting because it's um it's a germanic word and and it's obviously um its roots actually lie in uh, the word "bletzian," so to consecrate with blood um and so it probably goes back to um pagan you know pre-christian um ceremonies where literally they would consecrate things with blood um sacrifices animal sacrifices or something um and then in anglo-saxon christian language it gets transferred to christian blessing you know obviously which does not really involve <laughs> kind of bloody sacrifices um and so it's it's sort of its meaning has very much been I don't know, sanitized isn't quite right, cleaned up certainly, but, but it has got this this really kind of visceral, um, in the literal sense, I guess, really visceral kind of origins about how you make something holy through the spilling of blood. And then it comes down to, you know, blessing, which is, is rather um, more, I don't know, sweet, I
1: suppose. It's <laughs> <laughs> a fascinating word. Mm. Um, how did you first get into old English like what led you there what was your process uh
2: so I came to old English totally out it was came to me out of the blue when I started studying English at university I'd never read any at all I don't think before I came to university because I just don't do you really, <laughs> really no
1: does. no you don't just pick, <laughs> pick up the wanderer and then go that's right yeah. <laughs> um,
2: but so when I got to I, when I got to university I thought oh yeah I really really like English but I'm probably going to want to study Victorian literature or, or whatever I had no real interest in medieval stuff um except that I had really enjoyed Tolkien as a teenager and so that's always you know that's a primer to get you
1: ready. Isn't for not that it. every medievalist story I feel like like everyone's right. like well, I really like Tolkien and I didn't really mm-hmm. think about it and then I got to college. Yeah. And <laughs> then I realized oh wait there is actually all this
2: medieval stuff that Tolkien
1: <laughs> was drawing drawing on and yeah um so I
2: just kind of I fell in love with it actually the Wanderer um, was one of the first poems that really got, got to me. And that's when I talk about a lot in the book. It's kind of this sense of, of a lonely winter exile and looming winter darkness and something apocalyptic about it. But it just, um, I don't know, the strangeness of it and the beauty of it and the interest of the language just all kind of really um, spoke to me in a way that I just completely would not have expected. And ever since, I've, I've just really loved it.
1: I love that. I love hearing about how people discover their um, interesting pathways into these not easily accessible on the surface subjects that end up opening up a whole new worlds of interest. And I think that describes old English really well. Um, It's not easily accessible, but then once you journey further into it, um, it's so beautiful and lovely. So for someone just beginning to Uh, discover Old English or learn about it, where would you recommend that they go book-wise? What should they read? Um, What do you think?
2: I think there are, so one of the, the kind of interesting things about Old English is how much can you try and engage with the language? And there are kind of good books out there to help you Um, sort of help people start to learn the language teach yourself old English is actually a very good book Um, um, but then I think there's kind of no substitute for going to the sources going to something like Beowulf there's many good translations of Beowulf that's a good place to start Um, and then anthologies of old English poetry that just give you a sense of um, of the variety of it Um, you know there's a lot of just really interesting almost all anonymous short poetry in old English about which we know very little in terms of where it came from or who wrote it or why or the date or anything. But I mean, like The Wanderer, for instance, but just so interesting when you kind of actually get to get to grips with it. So just dipping into an anthology of old English poetry is the best way, probably.
0: Yeah. Do
1: you have any anthologies that you specifically recommend? Um,
2: So I list a couple at the back of um, Winters in the World. There's a good one called The Anglo-Saxon World. Um, there's a, a book called just Anglo-Saxon poetry. Um, so, yeah, there's quite a few out there.
1: What um, what do you think is your favorite Old English poem?
2: That's a good question. <laughs> I
1: can <cannot> list <laughs> <think there's> several.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Probably have to pick different ones. Um,
1: oh, here's one, okay. Yeah. If you were, since it matches the theme of your book, hmm. name one poem per season that you would read exactly. yes
2: okay that's that's a nice that's a really nice question actually so <laughs> for winter, there are lots and lots of winter poems as I talk about in the book just like a, a, there's a, a huge imbalance in terms of of how much poetry gets written about winter um but probably the wanderer is my favorite winter poem because it just it so much gets this sense of how winter kind of gets inside your heart and you know freezes the spirit and and kind of can be such a um a kind of a season of, of of sterility and kind of deadness and and you know just a time to wait and endure it's very much a poem of kind of patience but then the spring poem that i like is a poem that's often paired with the wanderer um they it's called the seafarer and it's about someone who kind of is responding it also ha- it starts off in a wintry place because he's you know he's a seafarer he sails at sea he complains about how cold it is um but actually what we learn as the poem goes on is that Winter's not the whole story for him. Actually, he chooses to go out to sea because he's actually excited by it and energized by it. And when spring comes, what he wants more than anything is to go out to sea and endure hardship voluntarily because he just kind of gains something spiritually from that sense of self-denial and not staying around on land to enjoy how pretty spring is, but <laughs> kind of you know, kind of being driven by the spirit of spring to seek out new things um then what we got summer uh nice poem of summer there's a lovely poem called the phoenix which is maybe the most summery ma- there aren't very many summery poems
1: <laughs> <in your> <laughs> <deal>. <laughs> they aren't really a summary people no, the anglo-saxons <laughs> understandably i mean
2: that's right yeah that's that's true of english weather really um Yeah, the phoenix is really nice it's about obviously the legend of the phoenix so it's not about english weather it's about a kind of paradise landscape where it's always summer and the poet just kind of delights in describing a beautiful wood in summertime and the kind of movement of light through the leaves and um and the pleasure of sort of bathing in the spring the phoenix goes bathing in the um in the sea and enjoys the the kind of cold of the water against the heat of the day and it's just really that's lovely and then harvest Good question. Quite a lot of harvest, sort of bits and pieces, but maybe Beowulf I would pick for harvest. Oh, that's
1: for- a good harvest yeah. one. Yes, <laughs> but wait, explain why you would pair it with harvest. But because for me, it's it, like instinctual. Like I'm like, oh yes, Beowulf in the fall. Okay, interesting. That sounds great. Yeah. But then I don't really have a great reason why. It's just that. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, probably quite a lot of Beowulf is also quite wintry. Mm-hmm. Um, but it starts off with this, the little story of Shil the Danish king, the kind of legendary hero king who's the ancestor of Hrothgar, the king that Beowulf fights for. And Shil is a sort of a hero of the harvest. You know, he his name is associated with sheaves of corn and he kind of he comes out of nowhere. And then when he becomes king of the Danes and then when he dies, they send him out to sea very famously on a ship and no one knows where the there's the, um who received that cargo no one knows who where the ship has gone and I think there's something about the harvest in that this sense of a quite mysterious power that comes to you and brings prosperity and wealth and success and happiness for a time and then departs again and you don't quite know where it's gone or if it will come back again and that sort of mystery Mm. um
1: yeah yes I like that I, I think my reason for my gut reason for associating Beowulf with, with the fall is a lot shallower. I, 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 realized I was like, Oh, it's because it has a monster in it. And I'm thinking, about oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> that's good too. Yeah. Yeah. you know, spooky reading in October. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Well, as the the nights get shorter and then you're afraid Grendel's outside the door, that's, that's yeah. kind of
1: Halloween. Yeah, yeah. Or if you wanted to, you know, dress up as Grendel for Halloween right. or something, that would be a very nice, uh, Anglo-Saxon costume. Um, Although as you mentioned in the book, they did not celebrate Halloween. So that would be a modern spin. (laughs) Um, But speaking of what of the Anglo-Saxon festivals or observances or holidays um, would you choose to reinstate if you could sort of bring one back into our public consciousness, what would you choose?
2: Yeah um so I would have to choose I would be torn between Lammas which is the harvest festival mm. first of August, celebration of the first fruits of the wheat harvest um which is just a really nice moment I think the first of August is a kind of it's a moment of you're sort of transitioning out of the height of summer you're starting to get a sense that autumn is coming but it's not really there yet mm. you're kind of getting closer and closer to the autumnal equinox and away from the source and so on so it's kind of a nice moment to mark um and it's a festival of kind of bread and, you know, you're kind of breaking bread together. I think it's a nice thing to do. And then the other one that I really like is Candle Mass, which is kind of mm. three quarters of the year later, which is um, in uh, the beginning of February. And it kind of marks the transition between the end of the Christmas season, um, 40 days after Christmas, and the sort of moving into early spring. And it's a kind of about the cusp of Christmas and all, looking forward to Easter. It's about when Christ was presented in the temple and, um, so he's still an infant at this time, but he's it's kind of there's a looking forward to his future um destiny and suffering and, and resurrection. Um and that was celebrated by people um taking candles to church to be blessed, and then they would kind of process with the candles and then keep them. So it's a really beautiful festival of light, just at that point in February where I think you, you know, winter's been going on for a really long time and you do actually need some light. So that's that's one of the nice things about it.
1: Oh, I I like that idea. Um because I live in Colorado and February and March are basically the worst months of the year. Um, when you were describing March, when you were describing March in the book, I was saying how, um, it was sorry. Um, what was the name for it? That was like the storm month, Oh yeah, um, Yes, and and it's the the month here in Denver of the most snow of the year, which feels so unfair. Um, but I I I related to that. <laughs> so, I feel I feel a bit um old English right now, but um candlemas would be very lovely with the symbolism of light in the middle of um, a very dark time of year, especially when you're getting really sick of it, honestly. Yeah, yeah, um, right. The excitement of Christmas is over, the festivities, and you are about to uh, <laughs> embark on the long journey towards Easter. <laughs> that's exactly it. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, well, uh, where can um, people... Uh, find you online if they would like to know more about your projects about your books um, about anything that you're working on do you have social media accounts where can they do
2: so I have a blog as I mentioned the Clark of Oxford um haven't updated it as recently as I should but it is there Um, and I am quite active on Twitter
1: also Clark of Oxford so I can always be found there great great and um I I wanted, I did, I wanted to thank you again for both for coming on, but also for the Clerk of Oxford blog, which um, I have really found so so many delightful. Especially uh, your some of your posts on medieval lyric poetry, um, I've really enjoyed. So thank you for p- putting that out into the world and having it be accessible to folks. Um, it's been a great resource
2: that's, that's what I was hoping people would do, that they would just find it as a resource and do what they wanted with it. And so I'm really glad to hear that. Yes.
1: Um, Well, thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thanks very much for having me.
0: Of course. Thank you for listening to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and I would love to hear any of your thoughts, questions, or simple curiosity through social media. You can find me and follow along hearing all the latest podcast updates on Twitter at Grace Hammond, PhD, or on Instagram at Old Books with Grace. For listeners who would like an extra dose of literature and spirituality in their lives, I also have a Substack monthly newsletter called Medievalish that is also a lot of fun in my unbiased opinion. In two weeks, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Anika Prather as my guest to Old Books with Grace. So that's something to really look forward to. Thanks again for listening.